Hello and welcome to Jam Sessions, a podcast brought to you by Think Jam. My name is Daniel Noy and I'm your host for this edition. Our guest today is award-winning writer, director and producer Ben Channon. Ben's latest show, The Capture, was just launched on NBC's new streaming platform, Peacock, and was broadcast to great acclaim last year on the BBC in the UK. I've known Ben for many years since we were students, and I've worked directly with him, workshopping story ideas, and most recently as a story consultant on The Capture. It's a world of storytelling that I wanted to explore with him today, as well as his varied career in both documentary and drama TV production. We just touched the surface of some of his work, and I'll highlight the end of the podcast where you can find some of his shows. But in the meantime, let's get on with the interview. What I really want to start with was congratulating you on the US launch of the capture. Thank you. I've been seeing some of the reviews. I saw Time magazine said it was the best new original show on Peacock. That's great. Yeah, because that's not a trademark. So to get a good review in Time, that felt that was a, it was a good day. But there's only about four others, so it's not like <laughs> it's the best out of two hundred or anything. I think there's I think there's a, I think there's four or five originals on uh, Peacock. Nonetheless, I'll take a compliment wherever I can. Take it, take it. Not that these things matter, but I also saw ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes as well, which is uh, all tomatoes, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're from. Uh, how how's it been? You've been doing the kind of bit of a virtual Zoom press trial. Yeah, we did a Comic Con Zoom panel with uh, Ron, Famke, Callum, Holiday. I, I guess that would have been in, in San Diego if we weren't in yeah. the year of the pandemic. That would have been great. But hey, nice that Comic-Con were interested. I did that and I did a whole bunch of other interviews with Ron for American media. We should probably backtrack. That's Ron Perlman. For, for Ron Perlman. Uh, for those actually who haven't seen the capture yet, uh, it was on obviously BBC last year and in the US... Uh, on Peacock now. You, do you want to give us a little summary for those who haven't seen it yet? Capture, it's a six-part series which looks at the world of misinformation and asks the question, can you trust what you see? Do you want me to tell you more about the plot? If you want to look at the plot, <laughs> look, at the, look at the two-minute trailer that Peacock put together because it gives away everything. <laughs> Actually, it was something I was going to ask you later about, but have you brought up the trailer? Do you get to see all these trailers before they go out and how they're kind of promoting the show? Yes. Yes, they do. They run them by us and they and we give notes. But it's not my department. I'm just you know, careful about spoilers. Yeah. Because your enjoyment of a thriller depends on not knowing anything from the start. And it's so easy with just two frames to the to the right and you've just given away a massive spoiler, with, particularly with this show. So with the BBC one, we forensically analysed it and, and sort of panicked about how, how are we giving away too much. With the Peacock one, we just felt, well, it's already gone out in the UK. It's kind of out there. And it, and it seems to be a different approach. They, they really do. They, they tell you the whole story. But if you look at trailers nowadays, movie trailers, they all seem to do that as well. They just yeah. seem people. I think there's a... There's obviously a kind of crisis of there's so much to watch and there's so much being made, or at least there was, that I think people are just like, no, we're just going to tell everyone everything up front and then they can choose whether they want to see it again in longer form. So I guess it's a different approach. But yes, in answer to your question, we do see it. We do get to see what they do before. Other than kind of <laughs> spoiling the whole show, what kind of differences have you, have you seen in, in, in their approach? Is it mainly about in how they convey kind of the themes and the, and the characters yeah i think that um 
I think that the the American audience or the or the idea is that, and I hope it's true that they are they're all, they're interested in it in another level in that it's exotic to them because it's London, it's not it's it's the UK, and we have we have famously so many more cameras than they do. Whereas I think British audiences will need to know, well, you know, who are the characters and what are they doing? And, and of course, American audiences will, will want that as well. But I do think there's been a, a, a sort of um, a strand to the promotion in America, which is, look how many cameras the crazy Brits have got. Isn't that incredible? Well, let's take a few steps back. Obviously, you, you started as a editor in, in the world of documentaries. Take us back to how you got you're starting your career and the kind of stuff you're working on uh, out, outside of your, what you're doing now, which is kind of very kind of thriller based. Yeah. I didn't n- know that I was going to make thrillers as, as my sort of become my sort of a little bit, my stock and trade, I suppose. I, I always knew I wanted to be a director. I had no idea. How do you become a director? It seemed to, you know, when I left uh, college i just thought well, i know i want to do that but how do you do where do you sign up for that it just felt it just felt so and particularly then i think there's so much production now but in the sort of i don't know when it, whenever it was early noughties there was like yeah it just what it just wasn't boom time like it is now yeah but i felt like editing was something i could do editing was felt like something that was a little bit more tangible a little bit more possible to achieve and, and also you don't need as much confidence to be an editor, frankly. I mean, if someone had taken me age, I don't know, in my early twenties and said, here, I'm going to fast track you to a film set. And now you've got to go out there and tell an entire crew and cast what to do. I, I think I'd have probably made a, a, a dog's dinner of it. I think that editing, it's just you and the director, right? And, and it's just a little bit more, it's, it's kind of easier as a, I found it. I felt confident saying I can do that. I think what's fascinating to me, especially uh, in, in the field of documentaries, which is even more than in fiction, you are structuring the story, you're structuring the narrative. What, what are the lessons there you learn about kind of storytelling and how much control did you have to kind of shape the story with the directorate? I kind of learned everything I know in the cutting room. Um, and I, you're right, I did, I did cut documentaries. And I, I think, I think there's obviously there's a, a wonderful craft to cutting fiction, obviously, as well. But I do think, <laughs> cut, I'm biased, but cutting documentaries, particularly a kind of observational documentaries where it's not all script, scripted and planned beforehand, and it's kind of the director's gone out there and get, got what they've got and, and brought it back to the cutter room and gone, what can we do with this, you know? Um, I think that it's like script writing. It's structuring a story. You're, you can't choose all the dialogue, or rather you, you have to cull the dialogue from what's available to you. But in terms of the story and the structure, you are, you're creating that in the cutting room. It, t- it taught me so much about, yeah, about structuring a narrative. It's a very similar process to, to writing or sort of plotting a, a drama. You have to keep your eye on how long it's been since you've met a character. You can't just go off for 20 minutes and, and hope the audience will remember that guy. And just the whole sort of the, the hero's journey, I suppose. It's kind of, it's there in... in observational docs just like it is in in fiction so yeah it taught me a ton of stuff and to to your other question i uh, that's like it really depends on the characters in the cutting room some directors will want not want you to do that but i was i was a frustrated director and boy did the directors know it you know I (laughs) i was a pain in the ass i'm sure 
and yeah, and, and you and you just sort of you know it's it's a battle, right? Hopefully, an ultimately happy one. But yeah, you can be you can be pretty hands on in documentaries as an editor. You're not just there to sort of cut and paste as the director wishes. Often, often the director's still shooting while you're while you're going through the the, the rushes, trying to trying to make sense of it, and trying to work out what your story is. I think what I, I, I find, found interesting in some of your work, finding those moments of, of quiet and silence of characters and not just the straight interviews. I always find that fascinating where you find out so much more about the interviewee from the moment before or the moment after. And, and I, I've seen how you've used that in the past. Those, those lessons I find interesting in terms of the power storytelling, that it's not just everything driving the plot forward, a look, a glance, the power that that can have to move the story forward or to tell you something about a, a person. It, yeah, it's for sure. really powerful for sure and and you know really good doc directors they let that they let the camera breathe you know they let those observational moments just breathe and and also you can frankly project just like you can project onto an actor you know an audience can project oh i bet they're thinking that at this point and they you know who knows what they're thinking right but it but the right look at the right point will mean something when i started directing documentaries i didn't know what the hell i was doing and I had a brilliant a camera woman. She basically taught me directing, you know. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And she taught me to shut the fuck up. Can I swear? She, yeah. taught, me, she <laughs> taught me to shut the fuck up occasionally. Like, don't constantly ask questions. If you don't ask questions and just hang out and shoot. And I was thinking, well, I'm not really doing anything. then. <laughs> but that's, that's uh, when the contributors start to talk amongst themselves. And, you, and actually, I'll end up being better, potentially better than... than when you're constantly throwing questions in you've delved in so many different worlds how has it helped shape your view of the world really when you're kind of meeting such a wide variety of people and experiences yeah you mean specifically the those the, the spooks or that you want or do you well, want yeah to... i mean yeah let's, let, i mean let's let's jump straight in there okay. to your, your bafta winning documentaries that plot that bring down uh, to bring down britain's planes title still hurts <laughs> what was your what was the title you you wanted Liquid bomb plot. That's how. That's what it was called in the in in the US. Interestingly, just to jump back to your earlier question, yeah. if I may, the the, right. the thing about do they run trailers past you? They do now. Like they they now they do. Like as you, as you get on in life, you get a bit more control over your projects. And now they run trailers past me, and everything past me. Every you know poster or or tagline or obviously all that comes gets your approval. But there was a time when I was making documentary Channel 4 where they would just change the name of a, of a doc and just phone me and just go, it's called this now and it's on tomorrow, bye. And um, that was that. You know, I had no choice over editorially when I started, obviously. So, so yeah, no, I didn't choose that title. But I'm, I've, got, I, I've learned to live with it. What's fascinating about that, I think, is, which is that it's all part of the story, right? It's all part of the story of, of what you're going to watch. You know, mm. the story doesn't start when, as it were, the opening credits are. The story starts when you've watched that trailer or when you've seen that poster. It, it, sets, it sets you up for what you expect and the seeds are sown of, of what that experience is going to be. And, you know, to change the title or to have a trailer that is, is, is either lackluster or too frenetic or, or so on just sets you up in the wrong way and can totally change the impact of, of how your work's received. Yeah, for sure. I'm talking to some students in a couple of months talking about storytelling and, and advertising and 
they're film students and I try to compare how you shape a, a scene or a show to the structure of, of advertising but look at all the component parts in the same way as like a show might start from the tone that you feel from seeing a trailer on a poster to your opening scene your opening dialogue to the, every episode and so on it's the same way as from the the one gif that you happen to see uh on social media to your full trailer to every part they, they all they all support each other and all build up to tell a much bigger story one thing that trailer that tells a story or that poster that tells a story can just can make it a win or lose situation so easily yeah i've never i've never made a commercial but i really actually admire the the format because you have to tell a story in 30 seconds and that's not easy there's something really impressive about that absolutely but I think there's a lot to be said, as you said, for trailers, which is the, the, the teaser form of the trailer is, is always my favorite. The one that mm. gives you a sense of what you're going to get, but leaves you hanging and wanting to know more. Yeah, I like those two. Although I actually have to say, I'm probably guilty of, of that, of being one of those people who do, does want to does see more. And I, I personally don't care about spoilers, and which is why I've also got to watch myself, not now because the captain's gone out, but like for season two or anything else I do. I'm I'm terrible because I'll just blurt one out, you know, because <laughs> I don't actually. I can watch a film and and having some someone having spoiled it, and I don't mind at all. Just don't mind. We need to uh, but, design a sign for you to carry on saying just permanent spoiler alert. Yeah, <laughs> but the characters I've met in Docs, I mean, before that, uh, before the terrorist document, before the plot to bring down Britain's planes, you know that. It's such a privilege making documentaries and going around the world and meeting different people. It's a great so you just you just get invited into people's homes and places of business. You know you get to to talk to politicians and spy masters, but but then on another project you'll be in in a sort of you know in a, in a kind of Hicksville, USA, on the porch of someone who's had an, a whole different experience of life. And that's a, a, a privilege as well. So, yeah, it's a great way. And all of that is just great when you're colouring characters as a writer. When you, go, when you start to go, well, who's this guy? And you've got in your head sort of years, of, years worth of real people that you've met who are outside of your social bubble. I mean, it's not that difficult to write people who are in your social bubble, and that's fine as well. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you've suddenly got to write, a, you know, I don't know, a cop or, or an American cop or whatever it is, if you, if you've, if you spend some time with them, then, it, then obviously that helps. So it, it's, a, it's a wealth of experience that I'm very grateful for. And so in, in terms of going back to, well, I'll call it the liquid bomb plot. We'll, we'll, use, right. the, we'll use the title you liked. What did that, that world show you? Do you remember when, remember when it happened when suddenly you couldn't take water on planes anymore? Absolutely. I was just getting on a flight that morning to Edinburgh and I was at, I don't know, say Luton Airport and suddenly, you know, suddenly they said, right, rules have changed from right now, you can't take water on planes and, and everyone was freaking out at the airport. And my first thought was, this is, this is a government stunt. That's what I thought. I thought it was an MI5 stunt. I remember that because it was post 7-7, right? And, I, and obviously there was a, a great sense that the, the authorities had really 
failed in the run up to seven seven in that the plotters were on the radar and they had they they'd slipped through the, the radar and, and they'd gone on to commit this atrocity and i just the sort of the armchair conspiracy theorist in me thought this is a big ruse by the government or by mi5 to make it look like they're in control of a plot now i don't think that anymore having and then coincidentally a few years later um Bart Layton from Raw TV phones me up and says, you know, we're, we're doing this documentary about that plot and we've got access to the Met and would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. And then I got to meet the Met and then via the Met, various other spooky organisations and learnt it from their point. And, and I no longer believe it was a conspiracy. <laughs> and I suppose what I'm saying, in, in other words, you, you just obviously, you, from seeing different people's points of view, depending on who they are, but you, you end up kind of empathising with them. I think actually that, that's, you, you touch it on that. It's a brilliant actually segue to some of your other work because I think that, that notion of perspective and different points of view, I think it is clear in, and we could touch on this briefly, but in Blackout, in Cyberbully, in The People Next Door, it's all about, you know, the change of perspective. It's about seeing the world from one point of view and then having that kind of uh, turned on its head. And I think that's key to a thriller anyway, right? To, to any, any thriller, it, it's, it's guiding you down one way and then surprising you elsewhere. And often that, that surprise is a different point of view. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I'm always fascinated by different points of view. And, and you know, I think that the, the danger is you can end up sympathising with people if you're not editorially robust and you're not sensible. And you just, you, it's not about giving people a platform to spout, you know, things that are obviously wrong. But like, for example, that, that, doc, that um, terrorist documentary, my first instinct was we should try and get the plotters or their families. They were, in, they were in a high security prison for, you know, some of them were sentenced to 40 years. It was, getting an interview with them would have been extremely difficult. But my instinct was to try and, and get them or someone to represent them on camera to just to get a sense of rationale of why they did something like that. But we, we just, I mean, they, they wouldn't talk to us. Their lawyer wouldn't talk to us. Their, their spouses wouldn't talk, you know, they just wouldn't talk to, uh, you know, us. <laughs> and, um, and so they are by, by their exclusion in the interviews, they, they are just the terrorist plotters. That's, there's not a great deal of characterization of them because we don't know much more than is in the news about them that documentary was a game changer for you and did shift that first opportunity to straight fiction, but with a kind of a documentary edge to it. Great for you to share a story on, on, on blackout, uh, your TV movie. Mm. Um, you know, we do a lot of work with user generated content and I love the fact that this is a fictional story born out of user generated content and YouTube videos and so on. It'd be great, especially the characters that were, were drawn from that to tell a bit of that story. Cause I think people find it fascinating who haven't seen it. So blackout, it's a channel four one-off about you know, what would happen if, if the lights went out for a few days, as in what would happen if there was a, say a, cyber attack on the national grid and Britain was plunged into darkness and we decided to shoot it yeah Blair Witch style you know with whatever whoever had a phone that still had power what might they have shot in the hours and days after a blackout you've got to make a really good one if you're going to do found footage now but around at the time we made it I was still really in love with that with Blair Witch and name some other ones you know what I'm talking about <laughs> 
Cloverfield and all that yeah. stuff. I, I, I really like it. I just love the, the realness of it all and just feel like, Jesus, this, this could happen. This feels like this, this is, when they get it right, it's really difficult to get it right because you have to think, well, why are they filming? Why do they happen to be filming when the monster walks out on the street? Well, then you've got to give them a reason to be filming in the first place and happy birthday to you. You know, it's like there's, there's always got to be a reason why the camera's rolling. It can't just be always rolling unless there's a, as a character thing, the guy's always filming because of some, because he's, that's his way of controlling the environment or whatever. Um, so it's, it's contrived for sure, but I think the joy comes in making the contrivance plausible. Um, I loved that project because it was just so, it was so fast to shoot. I mean, you're not, you're shooting on a little camera. You can just, just you can shoot sort of, you know, 15 pages a day. It's just so fast. But one of the funniest things that happened on that production was we started before we shot anything fictional. We did a trawl of real UC, UG, UGC. Yes, generated content. content. Yeah, we did a shot. We did a trawl of real blackouts, power cuts, stuff on YouTube that people had shot in in situations like that. And I just put together a, you know, a kind of timeline of like an hour of people, people screaming in the dark, basically. But there was this one video where these two squaddies just got stuck in a lift and they were drunk and they were in a lift and they were just, and then unlike most people who get stuck in a lift, they just call for help. These guys broke out of the lift and climbed out the lift shaft and filmed the whole thing. And when I showed it to people, uh, everyone said, oh, what happens to them next? Uh, and we said, well, nothing. They just got out and they were fine. And that's, a, that's not drama. That's just a real thing. And then I started thinking, what if we got in touch with those guys? <laughs> and, and that's the beginning of their story. And then, we, and then we, we dramatized the rest of it. And it turns out they were sort of, one of them was still in the army, but he, was, he had some leave coming up. The other guy was, you know, living in the UK. And we got them together. And, and said, and, you know, and they loved this idea. And, and it had been about three years since the thing. And one of them had, one of them looked quite different, but we, <laughs> I don't know, we just got away with it, I think. But we, you know, so I wrote no dialogue, but just, you know, just the next thing they try. Now they have to get a lift to London. What do they do next? And, and we gave them a camera and they kind of went out and shot it themselves. And that was just, I mean, what a weird, what a weird, those two, we shot it in two days that we shot their strand in, two, I think possibly one day, I can't remember, one or two days, but it was like two of the funniest days. And I, my job was literally hand them a camera. They go off and shoot it, bring it back to me. I watched, I watched what they've shot, laugh my head off, give them a few thoughts. They go off and do it again. You can't be there because the camera's going all over the 360, all over the place. So you, know, you can't be on set, so to speak. Yeah, it was fun. I think it's brilliant. It's like, you know, today working with various YouTube influencers and them creating content and shaping it in, 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 into your own narrative. And I think it's brilliant because it's almost like it's a version of the capture. You know, you've got some footage and then, uh, and then some part of it might be fictionalized or not. How you've played with that and technology and how that connects again to uh, Cyberbully with brilliant Maisie Williams. That world of, again, it's, it's cameras... It's a point of view, but also one that's kind of contemporary, exciting, and scary all at the same time. Yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed making that as well. That was that came straight off the back of Blackout, and it, and it came because Channel Four really liked Blackout, and they said, "Can you do another one?" You know, like they what they they apart from anything else, I think they thought, you know, he's just delivered like a 
like a 90 minute fiction for the cost of a documentary. Let's get him to do that again. Whenever you do something that goes all right, people always want you to do the same thing again. And I think it's a really bad idea to just do, to do the same thing again. So I said, I don't want to do another found footage thing, but if I deliver you a drama, I deliver a thriller for, for you know, 300 grand, um, can I do something else? And that's where Cyberbully came from. It had to be, it had, like Blackout, it had to touch on a, an issue. In Blackout, it was our reliance on energy with cyberbullying, as the title suggests, is about uh, the fear of cyberbullies. So I wanted to do the exact opposite of Blackout. And Blackout had about, you know, 20 characters and the camera was flying around all over the country. This is one character, one room, and the camera's pretty steady. I think that cyberbully and then what followed from that kind of put you quite front and centre in the the world of high-end TV and the, the current golden age. Are we still in the golden age? Well, we were until February. <laughs> Well, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that a bit. You know, clearly TV productions basically shut down for the last few months. Some shows are beginning to start filming. Some more single camera dramas are, are looking to come back kind of October time. How have you seen the, the industry reacting and what, what's been the impact that you've witnessed? I just spoke to a couple of hours ago, um, someone who's working on War of the Worlds, which I believe is like the first high and production to go back um, and she said it's looking good and like you wouldn't from the dailies you would have no idea that there's been an interruption at all in the quality and I that's incredibly encouraging I feel very grateful to to that production and any production that's kind of going back to to work now and I think we're all looking we're all looking at those productions and going what can you teach us how how are you doing it what are you getting right and wrong and what lessons can we learn? And I think they're all being very generous with what they are, with what they're learning. It's look, if any industry's going to get it right, I think that, I think that production will, that, you know, crew are always great at adapting to all, all kinds of different scenarios and restrictions and rules. And I mean, trying to make creative decisions in, in that environment after eight hours of wearing a mask and socially distancing, it's just, it's gotta be, it's gotta be difficult. And to your point, I think the whole industry has done really well in putting the, the right regulations and rules in place as quickly as possible. And I mean, not, not just in TV production, but in advertising as well. We've already had members at Think Dan trained up in running sets in the age of COVID and we've just had our first shoot and it went really well. I mean, I think everyone across the creative industries are, are working hard to get the right measures in place. I feel fortunate in that this pandemic has caught me at a time when I was writing rather than in production. So I won't be on set for another, I don't know, at some point next year. I think where we've been seeing lots of new content, regardless of COVID, has been all the streaming channels. And coming back to the capture going on to Peacock, correct me if I'm wrong, this is your first launch on, on a streaming channel? Or how has that felt different from, I suppose, a, a standard broadcaster? Well, it, the couch was very much made as a sort of weekly big end of episode cliffhangers. And, you know, it, it was made in the sort of, I guess, in the, the form the, the form that I grew up with when I was, when I was watching TV as a kid is that it goes out once a week and you, and you make people really want to come back. And, um, that's not to say it doesn't work if you binge the whole thing, because people clearly do that anyway. Um, but, but there is, yeah, there's something, there's something different. Do you know what? I think if you look at the reviews, 
they were probably on the whole, we got some good reviews over here as well, but I think they're on the whole possibly better in America. And that partly is because they, they watch all of it. So they don't have that thing. If you get, when you get reviews over here, and I don't just mean TV, reviews, but I mean like, you know, um, tweet, tweets and, uh, you know, and feedback. Um, it's often a bit like, well, I liked this episode, but we'll see where it goes. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, you know, there's a sort of caution that people don't, people don't want to stick their neck out necessarily and say they, they liked it because they're, they're, they, they, they're used to watching things that don't necessarily deliver on their promise. And, and there's something quite gratifying about getting feedback from people who've quickly seen all of it. Yeah, I think that the world of binge watching has changed how we look at stuff. I think you, you have m- many more conversations where people will say, give it two, three episodes yes. uh, and, and aren't judging it straight away. And, and when you know that, you, you do give it the time, you give it the space and you adjust your expectations accordingly. And, you, and there's many rewarding experiences out of that. Definitely. I'm still quite old fashioned though. I, 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 I don't like to binge too much. Two episodes, it's fine. Yeah, two episodes. I haven't got time for more. <laughs> I feel grubby. Sitting on the sofa for four, five, six episodes. You just feel, Jesus. Do you remember that show, Why Don't You? Absolutely. Why don't you switch off television set and go and do out, go out and do something less boring instead? I think I, I sort of hear that in my head every time I sit there binging and eating crisps. Um, but we can never skip the irony that that was a TV show telling you. It was a TV show. I used to scream that at the TV as well. But wait, what's happening? You're a TV show telling me to turn off the TV. What's going on? But now, now I'm feeling like the, the middle-aged parent that I am when I think that. Just to conclude, looking ahead at what you're working on, it's been announced of the second season of The Capture, and I'm pleased and honoured to be involved with you as a story yeah. consultant on that. Uh, what else have we got on the horizon for, for you? I'm doing a, a series for Sky, which is provisionally called You, but we it's not going to be called you when it goes out. There's already a show called you for one thing, which is an adaptation of a German pop cult novel called you by uh, Zoran Dvenka, which is essentially about a gang of teenage girls who steal a large quantity of heroin from one of the girls, drug dealing uncles and go on the run across Europe. So it's fun and it's slightly heightened and yeah, just a, a little more poppy and, um, and heightened than the capture and a, a little more kind of out there. I'm writing it. I'm not directing it. And that obviously being a sort of show that crosses different countries in Europe, that's obviously been put on hold for a bit. <laughs> we were supposed to be shooting that in October. We're going to hopefully shoot it in the spring. Well, we can't wait to see that. And when, and when might we see uh, season two of The Capture? Now you're asking. Um, <laughs> well, you know, as soon as possible, as soon as we can get the cameras rolling on it. COVID pending. Sorry to be vague, but, but that's a, you know, that's, we've got a great new story, as you know. As I do. But yeah, we've just got to figure out when we can shoot it. Cool. Well, as life is COVID pending, I will let you get back to thank your you. lockdown. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. No worries, dude. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Ben again for his time today. As mentioned uh, during the podcast, the capture is now available in the US via Peacock, NBC's new streaming platform. And you can watch it on BBC iPlay if you didn't catch it at the end of last year. For those in the UK, you can see Cyberbuddy, 
starring Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones and The People Next Door on all four Channel 4 streaming platform. And if you want to see his documentary, The Liquid Bomb Plot, or The Plot to Bring Down Britain's Planes, you can find that on uh, YouTube. We're looking forward to doing some more interviews with creatives over the coming months, as well as a whole host of great guests, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Thank you for your time. And this was Jam Sessions. 